Seltzer Kings Podcasts. Hey, are you into werewolves, mad sciences, and a little bit of witchcraft? Then stay tuned for an all-new episode of Watch Corner. We're riding this train straight into the sun. Woo! Tune in to a classic episode of Watts Corner on the Seltzer Kings Network. Available on all podcast platforms. Hello, I'm Gavin St. James, the junior producer for What the Hell Were You Thinking? It is June, and that means it is our new annual Pledge Drive Month, where we ask you to support What the Hell Were You Thinking and all the fine podcasts on the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. It's also the month of host Dave Bledsoe's birth, and he feels that alone should compel you to help in any way that you can. Of course, he would prefer that help in the form of monetary compensation via our Patreon, patreon.com slash whatthehellpodcast, but he would only use that money for liquor, cigarettes, and the company of sex workers. Those poor women. No one should have to endure that. So perhaps you will feel as queasy as I do about that. You can also help by recommending the show to a friend. Take their phones, follow the show on their podcast app, or perhaps spam them on their social media. It helps others find the show and understand the living hell I endure every week working with that man. Also support the good shows on the network. Head over to SeltzerKings.com and find something that does not have a raging alcoholic egomaniac. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. No, Gavin, I would never... No, I'm not saying you have to give me something for my birthday. I'm just saying it would be nice. Ass. The following podcast contains... Only I didn't say fudge. And for gosh sake, watch your language. Watch your profanity. Right, I'm sorry. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you stood up at the con and asked the panel if the Ninja Turtles were boning April, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 316. It's not a commercial, it's a cartoon edition of the show, where we come to grips with our childhood toy boxes. Stay tuned. What the Hell Are You Thinking podcast is brought to you by the USS Flag, who helped you learn you were poor. Like many kids growing up during the 80s, you probably weren't paying attention to your family's financials, but thanks to the USS Flag G.I. Joe playset, you learned the hard way that your parents worked two jobs for a reason. Retailing for $109.99 in 1985 or $207 in today's money, the USS Flag made clear for the first time why you were wearing your older brother's hand-me-down pants and always had peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for lunch. You saw the commercials, but only once your friend with an in-ground pool whose dad drove that nice car spread that seven-foot-long fucker out in their basement playroom did it finally sink in how poor your family really was. The USS Flag G.I. Joe action playset from Hasbro, demonstrating wealth inequality for generations. Now go play with your green plastic army man, you poor fuck. What are they again? Hello? They're robots in disguise. It's an exciting time in the franchise. They're branching out from vehicles to dinosaurs and insects. That is exciting. Do you like He-Man? I guess. Castle Grayskull. Skeletor lives there. Whatever. Do you like Chi-Gacho? Don't answer yet. Right this way. Dude. Behold, the USS flag. That takes up a lot of room. Yeah. It's an aircraft carrier. It's meant to hold aircraft. It's all right there in the name. Yep, this was going perfectly. 
that what happened next would really rock my world. Hey, gotta go. Thank you for your time. I might have mentioned a time or two that my dad joined the Air Force when I was a kid. I mentioned it. It was a pretty big milestone in my life. Pre-Air Force, housing projects, scraping by. Post-Air Force, suddenly and unexpectedly, safely middle class and loving it. It was probably a bigger deal for my parents since most 10-year-olds aren't really privy to the family financials. But I uh, I certainly noticed my first Christmas after my dad joined up because... Uh, oh boy, that was fucking yeah. amazing. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. My folks had always done right by us come toys for Christmas, but those few years after we first joined the Air Force were just literal showers of toys and games from the Sears catalog that would have been unimaginable previously. There was some downsides to military life, but I have to be honest, the fucking toys were awesome. Now, the culmination of these orgies of toys came in the form of two huge toy franchises that defined the early 1980s. For my sister, there was that icon of feminine empowerment, the Barbie Dream House. Mom and Dad, could this be your little girl? Imagine your Barbie girl celebrating Christmas dreams come true. Mom, a Barbie Dream House! And for me, the bastion of masculine toy accomplishment, the Castle Skull. What do we have here? It's Castle Grayskull. And it's mine. For the children of the 1980s, these two excessively large toys were the accoutrement to our lives that established us as a family firmly and safely not poor. We may not have been rich, but by God, our parents made enough money to demonstrate their love for their children by spending a couple of hundred bucks in 1980s money on toys that will almost be certainly be broken and forgotten by June of the next year. That's the power of love. Why did the parents of the 1980s find themselves compelled to lay out large sums of money for cheap plastic shit that required more money to be spent to purchase the toys needed to properly play with said toy? Well, you have a stroke of marketing genius. And it all begins with this guy right here. No, 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 not that guy. It was, I mean, it was way earlier than him. It began with D. David Abrahams, the founder of Mego Toys. Or rather, more properly, it was his son, Marty Abraham, who would truly change the way kids plays with toys and how parents bought toys for their kids back in the 1970s. The original Mego Toy Company produced dime store toys, cheap plastic figures and baubles that cost pennies to make and sold for dimes in stores across the country. But Marty Abrams, son of David, graduated business school and was installed as the company president in 1971. Fucking kids. Marty had a new vision for the company, and that vision was, to say the least, controversial. And the dolls! God, the dolls! Of course, since boys don't play with dolls, they wouldn't be called dolls, they would be called action figures. It wasn't entirely new, Hasbro had been running with their G.I. Joe line for several years already, and they had proven boys would in fact play with dolls. What, you mean action figures? What Marty thought of was simple. Instead of spending all the time and effort to create their own intellectual property and backstory for their dolls, what if, just what if, we made dolls of stuff that already existed? Mego quickly secured the rights to produce G.I. Joe-sized dolls with generic bodies that could quickly and easily be swapped out with different heads and costumes for both Marvel and DC comic lines. 
Mego Batman hit stores in 1973. <laughs> Quickly joined by Robin and a slew of villains. In addition to comics, Mego landed Tarzan of the Apes and Planet of the Apes, along with Wizard of Oz and Star Trek, which your humble podcaster had and loved. Not stopping there, Mego introduced dolls based on real people, like Sonny and Cher. I got you, babe. I got you, babe. Mego pretty much created the merchandise tie-in for movies and television in the 1970s, and you would not have Star Wars toys if it were not for Mego. Mego soon realized that if you're going to sell these dolls, why not sell stuff for the dolls? Barbie was already doing it with the clothes, so why not take the idea and run with it? Thus was born the playset, and Mego playsets were fucking spectacular. Star Trek USS Enterprise gift set. Star Trek action figures also sold separately by Mego. And it wouldn't just be Star Trek. Sonny and Cher had outfits, cars, stage sets, and all sorts of add-on toys that parents could buy to go along with the dolls. It was pure marketing fucking brilliance. Sadly, that uh, marketing brilliance did not extend to spotting the next big thing that it would made a straight-up Mego a straight-up household name and toys even today. While Marty Abrams was in Japan lining up the licensing for a new line of Japanese toys called Micronauts, a lawyer from Fox Motion Pictures dropped by Mego with some production stills for a new movie in production that they thought Mego might like to do business on. What with Mego being in the movie toy business and all? But no one in the Mego office could sign off on that big of a deal. So the Fox lawyers left Mego and went down the hall to Kenner's toys. And Kenner did have someone to sign that kind of deal. You telling me? Yeah, Mego missed out on the Star Wars toys because of fucking Micronauts, which no one collects and almost no one even fucking remembers. That little oopsie set the stage for a pretty rapid decline for Mego. They tried to capitalize on the Star Wars trend with other franchises, but they never took off. And the smaller size of Kenner's figure, action figures rapidly became the industry standards because they were so much cheaper to make. And then Mego tried to pivot to electronic games and sunk themselves deep in debt that they couldn't get out of. In 1982, one of the most influential toy companies in history closed their doors, declared bankruptcy, and it dissolved by 1983. Dude, that sucks. It does. Mego changed toys and toy browning forever and set the stage for perhaps the greatest decade of toys there ever was and ever will be. Now, I will stipulate for the court that Star Wars was not intended to be the biggest toy commercial ever made. If the court will stipulate that whatever else it might be now, it is first and foremost the biggest toy commercial ever made. I'll allow it. There isn't much that I could say about Star Wars toys that I haven't said in other episodes or been said in much another much better funded and produced shows than this one. For the purpose of this week's show, what we need to say is that Star Wars took the basic concepts created by Magmigo and expanded them to galactic proportions. Objection, your honor, objection. I would draw my pun. What the Star Wars did was, was much like what the Native American peoples did with the buffalo. Use every portion of the movie for toys. There was no character too unimportant, no scenery too transi transitory that did not wind up at some point in time as a toy in the Kenner line. I mean, they included the fat guy that they actually named Porkins that was on screen for like eight seconds 
and died. Cover me, Porkins. I'm right with you, referee. Jesus Christ, George Lucas, body shame much? The other thing Star Wars did was make it really fucking hard for any toy company without Porkins and the gang to find a toehold in the toy market. It was one thing if you held the license to some big IP like Star Wars or Marvel or DC Comics, but what if you wanted to bring a new toy to the market? How did you get kids to bug the shit out of the parents for those toys? Madison Avenue actually had a term for marketing to kids so that they would beg for products. Of course they did. They called it pester power. And if you were ever a kid, you know that shit worked. The pleading, the plaintive size, the puppy dog eyes, all designed to convince your parents that you would literally die if you don't get this toy. This caused some concerned parents, or more likely parents who were just sick of the shit from their kids, to form what was called ACT, Action for Children's Television. ACT targeted TV kid shows they felt were overtly and excessively marketed to children. Quoting from bettermarketing.pub, Quote, Action for Children's Television was formed in 1968 in Massachusetts as a grassroots foundation to improve the quality of children's programming. Romper Room would be their first victim. They also went after any children's shows that promoted violence. ACT was able to drive these shows off the air, and this brought us new shows like Scooby-Doo. Zoinks! Seen as less harmful alternatives. ACT would spend most of the 70s gathering information on the psychology of advertising to children and the damage that could come from it. Their findings? Children, especially younger ones, cannot differentiate between a cartoon and a commercial. Advertisers, including toy and junk food manufacturers, knew this. Every attempt was made to disguise commercials as cartoon and entertainment, but ACT would crack down on this. They requested that the FCC put regulations in place that limited the advertising attack that children are facing. These guidelines included a minimum of 14 hours of programming for children of all ages through the week. No commercials during children's shows. Hosts on children's shows cannot sell. Shows also need to disclose when the program was pausing and commercials were beginning. After these messages, we'll be right back. This was actually an incredibly successful grassroots campaign that resulted in better television for kids, who increasingly were spending more and more time watching television as parents are increasingly spending more and more time at work. And that worked fucking great until 1981, and this guy came along. Can you guess who I'm talking about? Think about it for a second. What if I give it to you in the form of a question? Who is Ronald Reagan? Ronnie deregulated everything. It didn't matter if it was lead in your water, smog in your air, or cereal ads in your toddler's cartoons. Fuck it. Everything must go. Quote it again for better marketing. Quote, one of the first big acts carried out by Reagan in 1981 was the appointment of Mark Fowler as the new head of the Federal Communications Commissions. One of the first things Fowler did was deregulate everything that had been in place up to that point. He claimed that the marketplace should dictate what was to be successful and nothing should stand in the way of that. Act didn't want to take this lying down. They started a task force and compiled 60,000 pages of expert testimony from child psychologists educators, nutritionists. The research reiterated the fact that young children cannot distinguish between an ad and reality. The act was also looking out for the best interests of kids and campaigned for higher quality shows that had an educational component that were just not, not just marketing tools. $16 million was raised to lobby against the task force. Can you guess who won? 
Fowler nixed his task this tax force in 1981 would be the doomsday for many classical educational and beloved shows. First on the block, Captain Kangaroo. Good morning, Captain. Good morning, Captain. Morning, Captain. Good morning, Captain. Good morning. Followed by Schoolhouse Rock, the very fitting Kids Are People too, and Animals, Animals, Animals. Then the floodgates opened, unquote. It's hard to comprehend how much and how fast children's television changed in the 1980s. I don't want to blow smoke up your ass and tell you that the 1970s Saturday mornings were sunshine and math problems, but it was alleviated in some part by actual educational programming in small doses that stuck in the brains of kids. If you have access to a kid of, say, eight or nine years old, go and ask them what a conjunction is. I'll wait. Yeah, they have no idea. Whereas your average eight or nine-year-old in 1978 could have told you exactly what a conjunction was, how one was used in a sentence, and listed several conjunctions as an example. Were our schools much better than today? Well, yes, but also we had Schoolhouse Rock. Conjunction, junction, what's your function? Hooking up words and phrases and clauses. There was this crazy idea that lasted about a hot minute in the 1970s that kids like to learn shit. And if you put it to them in a fun and entertaining way, they would learn. Sesame Street taught a generation to read and count. Schoolhouse Rock taught us history, language, and culture. And then Reagan came along and saw that if this kept up, pretty soon kids would develop critical thinking skills and conservative trash like him would never be elected again. And that sort of thing. That limp-wristed hippie garbage needs to be nipped in the bud. And promptly gutted not only education in schools, but also on kids' television. Because the most dangerous thing to a capitalist hegemony is citizens who can think for themselves. And what with all that space opened up on kids' programming, advertisers and toy marketers scrambled to fill the void. Nature and corporate bank accounts abhor a vacuum, and they created shit to fill it. Because in the early days, they were still slightly worried about being too blatant in their grasping for better power dollars. They did something different. Instead of going after an existing market like Star Wars, they would take what they already have and create a market for the products that would come shortly after the show debuted. You're an evil genius. And it began with this guy right here. Who's the big guy with the muscles? Here's He-Man, the most powerful man in the universe. Skeletor is his enemy. He-Man, He-Man. If He-Man, Skeletor, and Castle Grayskull, you have to put the castle together. You're doomed, He-Man. Oh, yeah? Watch this action, Dad. Now I have the power. He-Man and Skeletor each sold separately. Castle Grayskull also sold separately from the Masters of the Universe collection from Mattel. The story of how He-Man came to be is the story of toy marketing in the 1980s. And He-Man will be a stand-in for all the other toys of the time because their stories are all identical. Only the shape of the plastic characters and the names on the boxes changed. Long story short, Mattel had something like He-Man and the Master of the Universe in the hopper since the late 1970s. A quick look at He-Man reveals a pretty straightforward Robert E. Howard rip-off barbarian big sword, shaggy hair, bulging muscles that imply a heavy use of steroids and also imply 
Not that, not that I have a small penis. Toy designers knocked around various ideas and concepts for a couple of years until Fox, a Fox Pictures lawyer came calling in 1976 with production stills for a little movie Fox was making and wondering if Mattel would be at all interested in licensing toys spinning off from the movie, to which the president of Mattel, who was actually there and not in Japan pursuing Micronauts, said, No one will buy it. And passed on the deal. Naturally, the second Star Wars blew up, the alarms went off at Mattel, and everyone with any ideas was called to pitch in a desperate attempt to stay in the market with Kenner. What came out on top was a toy line featuring a Robert E. Howard ripoff called the Lords of Power, which would later be changed to Masters of the Universe because Lords of Power had a, quote, religious tone to it, unquote. A quick aside, 1980, shortly before He-Man went to market, and here I'm quoting from Wikipedia, quote, the rights holders of Conan the Barbarian had been negotiating the character's toy rights with Mattel, and they entered into agreement the following year regarding characters from the 1982 Conan movie. However, with Mattel introducing Master of the Universe toy line in 1982, the rights holders sued Mattel, claiming the character was an infringement of the character of Conan. Mattel eventually won the lawsuit, and after legal agreements were dissolved, it was stated that the toy line was never intended for the Conan film. However, some Conan influence can be seen as Roger Sweet has claimed to have drawn some inspiration from the paintings of Frank Franzetta, a fantasy artist with many works depicting Conan the Barbarian while he was creating E-Man, unquote. Let's just be clear. Every single one of us little D&D playing fantasy nerds knew He-Man was a ripoff of Conan the Barbarian. That's why we wanted the toys. Having the toys all lined up, it was time to get the kids to want the toys. Traditionally, kids' toys were advertised during Saturday morning cartoons, but Mattel was up against a juggernaut in Star Wars and needed something bigger, a way to reach kids more than one day a week. And fortunately for them, the increasing reach of cable television was offering access to a generation of kids sitting home alone after school for hours a day. And what with the Reagan administration conveniently killing all those regulations, why not just make the cartoons the commercials? And the masters of the universe! I am Adam, Prince of Eternia and defender of the secrets of Castle Grayskull. Again, quoting from Wikipedia, quote, Traditionally, the local stations have been airing reruns of either old theatrical cartoons or TV cartoons produced for the nationwide channels. However... This was soon to change as producers realized the potential of their selling their cartoons directly to independent stations. The first cartoon series to be produced for first-run syndication was He-Man and the Masters of the Universe and Inspector Gadget, both premiering with 65 half-an-hour episodes in the fall of 1983, unquote. If He-Man and the Masters of the Universe was, quote, was the first, they definitely kick-started a trend, and it wasn't but the length of He-Man's shriveled steroid cock before the others jumped in. G.I. Joe, Real American Hero, The Transformers, Thundercats, My Little Pony, Voltron, Care Bears, DuckTales, The Real Ghostbusters, The Smurfs, The Snorks, Darkwing Duck, Captain Planet and the Rescue Raiders, Dino Riders, and all of them with action figures, play sets, and Trapper Keepers with them on the cover, and all for sale through the magic of pester power. Going back to better marketing, quote, with deregulation lifted and no restrictions holding them back, manufacturers could now do whatever the hell they wanted. This is why you see an explosion of toys, cartoons, 
candy, fast food items, and junk food in the 1980s. There was a 300% increase in cartoons that had licensed characters. As much as we love these shows, let's be realistic, they were nothing more than 22-minute commercials to sell toys and products. The toy manufacturers themselves were now intensely involved with the production of new cartoons and children's programming. Shows based on any toy you could think of were put into production. Example, Rubik the Amazing Cube. On a mysterious night, Rubik Cube appeared, bringing happy day. Not only that, but it also enticed the broadcasters to schedule these shows in exchange for part of the profit from the toy sales. It was now the wild west of advertising. The example of G.I. Joe is a masterclass in how to market to children. Over the course of this series, they would release over 250 different vehicles and play sets, 163 different action figures. Each episode of G.I. Joe would usually be focused on a specific new character or vehicle that would shortly be released. You would then see these same action figures, vehicles, and accessories advertised when G.I. Joe would go to commercials. There were around 95 G.I. Joe episodes in total, so they were promoting around four new products per episode. This is also why when you watch old cartoons like this, you may notice they always refer to each other by their full name and refer to the vehicle by its specific description, unquote. It was absolutely insane, but in the mid-1980s, the toy market was saturated with action figures and play sets. And for parents, the sheer demand of buying this or that accessory or hot new action figure was exhausting. I was aging out of the demographic by the height of the Hejo Pony Transformer wave, but I could see the scads of toys littering the floors and yards of my friend's younger siblings, and it looked like a toy factory had blown up in their bedrooms. The parents were sick and fucking tired and began to complain loudly. Something has to be done! You know, when they weren't complaining about the satanic, satanic conspiracy trying to lure their children into their dark sabots. So it was in 1988 that Congress passed by a huge bipartisan vote. That was a thing we did in those days. A bill that would restrict advertising in children's programming to a still huge 10.5 minutes an hour on weekends and 12 minutes an hour on weekdays. A bill which the slowly sundowning President Reagan pocket vetoed, saying, according to the New York Times in 1988, quote, Well, this bill simply can't be reconciled with freedom of expression secured by our Constitution, unquote. He then went on to wander around the White House insisting that the potted plants were conspired against him and that they were responsible for selling arms to Iran and not him. You're making this up. The part about the plants? Probably. But you never know. Ronnie went on to say, Well, while I'll applaud the efforts to increase the amount and quality of children's programming, you know I had a, a show with a chimpanzee named Bongo. Was that his name, Nancy? I don't remember. The Constitution simply does not empower the federal government to oversee the programming decisions of broadcasters in the manner provided by this bill. 
conditioning license renewals upon the federal government's determination to the adequacy of a licensee's programming would violate the First Amendment, like when I said that I don't remember what I was doing on April 11th. Sorry, what was I saying? Oh, I have to read this? Thank you, Nancy. Make sure the astrologer knows about this. It would inhibit broadcasters from offering innovative programs that do not fit well neatly into regulatory categories and discourage the creation of programs that do not satisfy the taste of agency officials responsible for considered license renewals. Who am I? Why am I here? Why does George Bush keep talking to me in my ear? Something about Iraq. Nancy Bonzo. The chimp's name was Bonzo. Nancy, is it time for bed? Ronnie's tired. You know who didn't hate the bill? The National Association of Broadcasters. Their spokesman said, quote, while we recognize this legislation charted some new territory, we are willing to accept its outcome. Frankly, we expected the president to sign it. Under any circumstances, we are very sensitive to responsibility to provide quality program to children, and we will continue to do so with or without legislation, unquote. You know who was against it? The toy makers and junk food manufacturers who very much wanted to keep shilling their shit to kids and they're the ones that got their way. It would take until 1990 before a bill would pass that imposed limits on advertising times. And it also banned cartoon commercials whose sole raison d'etre was selling toys. And it mandated educational programming in kids' television. Not that we would get new programs or, say, a modern schoolhouse rock. What we got was, again, from Better Marketing, quote, Instead of having to pay to create educational content, some broadcasts would air reruns of shows like Leave it to Beaver and the Flintstones and the Jetsons, claiming they covered moral and social issues and were therefore educational. In a real slap of the face to the old act, some broadcasters would air G.I. Joe episodes because of this same workaround, unquote. Yeah, they just literally added a little morality tale to the last 30 seconds of the cartoon and then called it educational. Shit. It was a marketing strategy so fucking effective, the products it sold are the dominant pop culture of our times. Do you think it's an accident that 80s and 90s kids' toys are having their second act as the primary demographic hits their earning and childbearing prime years? These kids were so awash in commercial shit, it imprinted on their psyche and then they pass it on to their children, effectively giving them two generations for the price of one. If you want to understand the 1980s, indeed, the world that we live in today, all you really have to do is understand that once upon a time, people did give a shit about kids and their education. It wasn't perfect, and a lot of times it was sappy and filled with saccharine do-gooderisms, but people generally believe that kids maybe shouldn't be tiny revenue generators for corporate America. Yeah, they were marketed to, but generally there were limits, and folks felt that it was important that television do some small good in the lives of kids, and that's how we got shows like Mr. Rogers, Sesame Street, or even the network shows like Captain Kangaroo, who generally tried to be a positive influence on kids' intellectual and emotional development 
And then along came mean Mr. Reagan and his government of the problem goons and removed even the tiny checks on corporate group we had in place and opened up a fucking Pandora's box of corporate America. Yeah, yeah, we got some really fucking cool toys out of the deal, but I'm not at all sure that Castle Grayskull, as awesome a fucking toy as it was, was worth Ronald Reagan and conservatism poisoning everything that was slightly good in America. And you know what? I thought that you should know that because always remember what Joe told us. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. That is it for our show this week. I don't want to come across like I'm hating 80s toys. I mean, how can you possibly hate 80s toys? They were fucking amazing. But seriously, 70s toys were far superior in every way, mostly because you didn't need 600 action figures to play with them. You know what my favorite kind of toy was? It was a book. Oh, Jesus, here we go. No, 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 not like that. Well, kind of like that. But it was a Star Trek technical manual for USS Enterprise 1701, the original show. And it was filled with cool stuff about the ship, but it also had like life-size drawings of things like phasers. So I traced a pattern and cut them out of cardboard, and my friends and I had fucking phasers to play with, and it didn't cost 100 bucks. And if they broke, we traced out a new one. Imagination was our best toy. Come on, Grandpa. Let's go home. Jeez, kids. Speaking of using your imagination, rate and review the show wherever you get your pods. It helps others find the show, listen to it, and then think you must have a great imagination to think this show deserves five stars. All of my witticisms that I imagine people find them entertaining are on the social the hell underscore podcast on Twitter and the show name on Facebook. Drop us a real dollar on patreon.com slash what the hell podcast. And we'll put it to good use, tracing out cardboard dolls we can pretend are producer Gavin for our donors. All of our diseased imaginings are kept safely locked up at whatthehellpodcast.com. We are a proud member of the Salsa Kings Podcast Network, who imagined signing the show would be a good idea at the time, but have since learned they imagined the whole thing about us being good. So for me, Dave, by the power of Grayskull, producer, a beautiful heart, faithful and strong, sharing kindness, an easy feat and magic makes it all complete. I don't understand that. What is that about? Gavin and all the fictional Cobra Commandos on the show we want to say are a Barbie boy. In a Barbie world life in plastic it is fantastic. We'll see you all next week. What the Hell Were You Thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Seltzer Kings Podcasts.